Turn it on and rip the knob off. Welcome to the Wrestling Memory Grenade, episode number three. I'm your host, Ray Russell, and joining me once again is my co-host, Steve Ekstat. Steve, good to have you back, buddy. Glad to be here, man. I'm excited for this one. I want to start off by saying we really appreciate everyone who's been listening to the show, downloading the show, subscribing to the show, following us on Twitter. Reminder that you can follow the Wrestling Memory Grenade on Twitter at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Normally, this is where we would uh, begin reviewing uh episodes of tv over the weekend steve but uh this time we got something a little different plan we're going to do a watch along on the wwe network yeah this is uh it's be a first for me but i'm excited to get into it uh it's just unfortunate it's this show (laughs) and uh, i don't want to keep the people in suspense or hanging on any longer i hope everyone has the wwe network queued up we're going to count you down here in a few seconds if you're not queued up go ahead and pause this podcast real quick and get yourself ready for the show just one quick note before i press play I've grabbed about a half dozen sound bites from the show, and I'll be playing them throughout the episode. So if your soundbite audio is off from your video by a few seconds, don't panic. I actually grabbed the audio clips from my original VHS recording of Clash 5, so don't be surprised if you hear some original music intact at some point on the show. And now I'll assume everyone is ready, and we'll count you down and get ready to hit play on Clash of the Champions 5, St. Valentine's Massacre. In 5, 4, 3... Two, one. Tonight, the city streets will not be safe. Hey, the dragon's going to be breathing fire right here in Cleveland for the St. Valentine's Massacre. Be there. Across the nation, it's a time when people are looking for love. But tonight, the most explosive men in wrestling will be seeing red and breaking more than just hearts. Now, Superstation TBS presents Flash 5 St. Valentine's Massacre. We'll be there. You be there. Clash of the Champions 5, the St. Valentine's Massacre. Next. Here we go. We're live, and this is the fifth uh, uh, in our fifth episode of Clash of the Champions for the NWA, February fifteenth, nineteen eighty nine, from Cleveland, Ohio Convention Center, incorrectly reported as the CSU Convocation Center online. Convocation Center actually didn't open until nineteen ninety one, so incorrectly reported online. And uh, hosts here are Jim Ross and Magnum TA. This is uh, Magnum's first big shot at uh, color commentary on a big show. Yeah, um, 
I listened, I watched this a little bit a couple of days ago, and I thought he did a really good job. Uh, he started to show some of that personality that we've been talking about uh, last week on last week's episode. So, um, like we talked about, I'm just glad that NWA gave him something to do uh, with his injuries and everything where he couldn't wrestle. Um, kudos to them. And yeah, I, uh, to grab audio clips the other day, I watched the entire episode, the entire show, and uh, the, hot, the <clears throat> crowd was very hot here. Really live crowd. Unfortunately, they get fed a lot of crap as far as wrestling action goes. <laughs> it sounded odd from that clip you just played. Um, they seem really excited and pumped for this show to happen. And I um, think this that, is an odd. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say why it's up here. This is an odd location for a uh, announce table. <laughs> It's like, yeah, it's, uh, I can't tell if it's on a platform or on the ground, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a odd positioning and a reportedly crowd of over 5,000 people in attendance. And the show drew about a 4.6 rating on TBS, which is surprisingly slightly up from the 4.5 from clash four, which featured Flair and Wyndham versus the midnight express. But again, another lackluster card underneath the, uh, tag team <laughs> of clash four. And of course we get this clash five here. <clears throat> I don't know that it's a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah on paper definitely not um going into this show we have no idea like what the card is outside of a couple uh main event matches uh if you want to call them that but they didn't do a good job of promoting this one at all yeah and uh we got the first match coming up it's going to be the midnight express taking on the russian assassins of course the midnights are getting geared up in five days to take on paulie's original midnight express so this is kind of a tune-up match for them yeah. Um, what did you think of that Clash music at the beginning? Are you a fan? Oh, I loved it. I used to get so pumped for that when I heard that back in the day. I mean, it was it was awesome. I, I hated when they, they stopped using it, actually. Yeah, it, it, it's really awesome. It gets you pumped up and ready to go. It really does, yeah. And then here we have Jack Reynolds in the ring. And Reynolds, uh, like I had pointed out before, it was the lead announcer for the IWA promotion, who which tried to take over national expansion wrestling in the mid-'70s. But uh, Jack Reynolds is also known for spending about seven months hosting primetime wrestling with Jesse Ventura before re being replaced by Gorilla Monsoon in uh, the summer of 85. Uh, Reynolds was uh, reportedly the top guy, the top choice for replacing Tony Schiavone until he appeared here on this Clash of the Champions. Um, I didn't get an audio bite of this, but right now in the ring, the Russian assassins are the ring and Jack Reynolds screws up the very first introduction. He announces the Russians from from Kilos, Russia. Kilos, of course, being a weight instead of pounds in Russia. He announces them as being from Kilos, Russia, weighing at a combined weight of 288 pounds. That would make them pretty light guys. So Reynolds screws up right out of the gate, and basically Lance Russell winds up getting the job thanks to all of this. Yeah, thank God for that. Um, Jack Reynolds looked a lot older on those old primetime shows than he does uh, here, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I think I think the, this was uh, pretty easy to get Jack to attend this show. Jack was a Clevelander, I believe, uh, spent a lot of time doing sports in the Cleveland area, uh, 60s and into the 70s. Cornette here with the uh, tennis racket. He's wearing all black. I'm, I'm assuming that's in for Chicago, uh, the Valentine's Day massacre type deal. Try and go gangster, I guess. It's the opposite of him wearing white. Of course, Cornette wore white on the uh, – the Saturday night episode where he was attacked by the debuting Paul E and the original Midnights because he was going to Blade and he made sure to wear white so that the blood showed up more. But yeah, here tonight, Cornette dressed in all black. 
the Midnight's getting ready for action here. And the Russian Assassins, of course, uh, also known as the Angel of Death and Jack Victory. Jack Victory, the Jack, pun intended, of all trades. Well, there's the awkward camera cut to a woman that <laughs> NWA is known for in this so far this year. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's a directive of the producers or if that's a George Scott call. I'm not really sure what's going on with that, but there's another one right here. And uh, they go for a lockup here. It looks like uh, you go straight into a choke. So, <laughs> interesting so way to, inter yeah, interesting way. To, well, you can't you can't mix the two up because the angel has kind of has that body here, but uh, also Jack. Nobody can uh, mix anyone up with Jack Victory's big booty. No, you definitely not. I mean, that's how you can tell who he is. Um, I like this building. Uh, I don't remember a lot of shows here, uh, if if many. Um, but I like the the setup. Yeah, there weren't a lot of TV tapings based out of Cleveland from all the research I've done, not just in the uh, NWA, but also in the WWF. But the main arena uh, in the mid to late 80s and into the middle of the 90s in, in Cleveland was actually the Ritual Coliseum, and it was just too large of an arena to run TV tapings at. Yeah, they got all the pay-per-views, though. Yeah, uh, 87 and 88 Survivor Series, the 92 Survivor Series, certainly. Not sure where that Saturday night's mid event was taped in the mid eighties. Uh, they had one there in Cleveland. I think that was the one where uh, Steamboat gets dumped on his head by Jake. Or I know there's a Steamboat and Ooh. Jake match on there. Nice shot of a, a child in the crowd now. <laughs> just random right cuts. From, yeah, just random cuts right in the middle of the action. Like he's about to get out of the armbar, and they just cut to a little kid. Like, uh, did you see victory right there? He missed the elbow, but he bounced right up off his ass. And <laughs> Stanley, There's a lot of cushion. Stanley looked great, man, but he just uh, man a few moves. Yeah, what do you think of his kicks? Do you like his kicking offense? Or well, you know, Lane actually had a background in some—I don't know if it's karate or what it was—but he had some background in martial arts. But his his kicks were uh, a little bit different than most. Yeah, and he, he liked to mix them up, but he did them early, and he he always did those back kicks. It's almost like um, Jacques Rougeau, what he would do with the when he was with his brother. Uh, Rougeau, Jacques would always do those kicks too. I love those. That was a great heel heel kick <laughs> when the Rougeaus would uh, open him up and lay in that kick. Yeah, Midnight's here in control early, not doing a whole lot. They know they got over twelve, thirteen minutes to go with these guys. Polly dangerously. Up here in the corner, cut an insert promo. Uh, Vince McMahon move right there, those insert promos. Yeah, it's not not as clean, though, because I've I seen one of these last week on last week's episode, and they uh, like covered half the ring, where you couldn't even see the action because the in, the pop-up promo was covering the whole screen almost. So, And the power uh, just went out and back on <laughs> in, the, in the arena. <laughs> No, like but I, agree. I uh, I'm fine with it. I like the building. Tommy Young, the referee. I think me. I think when I first started really watching the NWA, I was like, man, Tommy Young is awesome. He's a great referee. I enjoy his work. Uh, I talked to you more about him uh, throughout the years, and I feel like I don't know. He's just, to me, he just tries to get himself over a little bit too much. I think Tommy Young's mannerisms are a little over the top sometimes, but I thought uh, just as a referee, he was tremendous. 
one of the one of the best for sure, easily. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there was a commercial or something that popped up, and or they were showing a highlight of something. I can't remember the show what it was, but they showed Tommy Young and um, the guy was going up for a suplex, and Tommy Young just looks up into the sky because he knows the guy on the outside is about to cheat, so he he's giving it away. But he's just like looking up in the sky so he can miss it, and then he grabs the foot. The guy outside grabs the foot and causes the DQ. I'm like, that's blatantly obvious. If you pick up on it, it's obvious. But Paul Jones having a conniption fit outside here, wanting to go after Jim Cornette. I think it's kind of funny Cornette's uh, standing up for himself, but he is the baby face here, so it makes a little more sense. Paul Jones, of course, had a legendary career, at least in the uh, Mid-Atlantic and Florida territories. As an actual wrestler, I should point out. <coughs> then he tried to rekindle that, right? Well, with the AWF or what? The NAWA? Oh, the NAWA into the South Atlantic. Yeah, booked himself uh, into the uh, championship run <laughs> about eight yeah. years, eight or nine years after retiring. That's good booking. Cornette smashed the tennis racket right there. I love it. Crowd's going nuts. You can see him. This crowd does seem like a hot crowd. They're really into it. Yeah, and they seem to stay hot for the entire show, no matter what they're being fed. And it's unfortunate that they're fed what they are. Because if you think uh, this is bad, which is not bad, it's your typical, just feels like a TV tag team match. But if you think this is bad, wait till the next match. Yeah, tell me just, about it. Just you wait. I know Melts had a lot of issues with this show, too, just because... They've given nothing. Uh, and he's like, I understand a throwaway show because you're close to a pay-per-view, but they're doing absolutely nothing. And uh, so far, like some of the talent looks like they're kind of packing it in as well. Some of these punches by the angel of death here, Russian assassin, which one is he? Number, or is that Jack Victory? Yeah. Jack, Jack Victory's number two. I don't know that okay. it matters. I don't, but. Insert your own toilet the joke there. <laughs> yeah flush it but uh yeah it was a very interesting week to week how the only time clash of the champions was really mentioned was just randomly during matches on the saturday night program jim ross would throw a, a match or two out there that would be on the card and like i said in the uh, last podcast if you weren't paying attention if you weren't listening you really didn't know what what this card was going to be i don't know that this match was even advertised at all I don't think it was. I don't remember hearing it. And all the TV, we watched, what, 15 episodes the last week's episode? And I understand I the whole point. Right. And I understand the entire point of uh, not giving away too much here is because they have a pay-per-view in five days. I still don't understand the point of booking this five days prior to a pay-per-view also. But the ma my main thing here is uh, there's plenty enough guys on the roster that you could have still put on some good matches here and, and not spoiled the Chi-Town Rumble pay-per-view and. and how, how deep is their roster at this point? Would you say, what, 40 guys? Is that pushing uh, it? or That may be accurate. It's hard to say because there's so many pieces coming and going right now. So it's hard to really yeah. get an accurate count of who's on the roster and who's not. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, maybe those guys that aren't getting that pay-per-view payday, maybe let them come out here and put on a show. You can put some of those guys in a match and let them, you know, actually come out and work. But uh, it's uh, inexcusable when you're paying this much for production and you have a live program that you're advertising your shows on, 
right here on on TBS, and this is what you're you're handing you know handing the people. And I don't have a problem necessarily with this match, but it's just that the continuation of the show it never really evolves into uh, into anything better than this. And I hope I don't scare away everyone. I hope hopefully we can keep you entertained long enough to watch the entire show. There are good pieces of it. I, I look forward to the uh, Flair and Steamboat confrontation later on. There's also some other interesting things like Steiner Watch 89 coming up. Yeah, plus you got the roadies in Tenro. Um, or as Jim Ross would refer to it, the roadies and a Japanese. Uh, <laughs> and we, all, we all know what Michael Hayes said. <laughs> He's ready to slap him. I'm not going to repeat it, but let's go listen to last week's episode if you haven't, and uh, you'll get the soundbite for sure. You know, there's a, a period in Smoky Mountain Wrestling where Stan Lane was wearing headgear, and at that time I wasn't really sure what was going on with that because I didn't have Smoky Mountain Wrestling until uh, almost – just a few months after Lane actually retired and Jimmy Del Rey took his place on the Heavenly Bodies tag team. But I never understood the headgear uh, scenario until uh, years later when I, I heard Cornette explain that uh, Stan Lane had had, I don't know, hair plugs or, or something done to his hair. Maybe it was a wig. I'm not really sure what he had done, but he wore the headgear to keep it in because he had, he was going bald. And I, I believe it actually comes off or it gets ripped out or, or something along those lines at some point while he's down there in Smoky Mountain. But you can see here, Stan Lane's his hair looks a little thin, and uh, yeah, it's thinning out a little bit. He has a small bald spot there too. And a guy so in you know, what, good shape, and good looking, good looking dude. I can see where he was a a little worried. <laughs> yeah, he probably is one of those guys that was uh, a little insecure when it comes to those things. If you're on TV, obviously you want to look your best. But uh, what do you think of Stan Lane's run in the WWF as an announcer? Um, I thought he was good. I, I mean, uh, he, he, he worked well with Jim Ross. I think if he had a good counterpart or somebody carrying him, uh, he, he had enthusiasm. Um, I, I really do think he felt really comfortable with, uh, Jim Cornette being in the ring with him, right. uh, like with the Yokozuna stuff. I, yeah. Like what don't say casket. I thought he did that really well. Like I still remember, I can still hear him saying it. Um, so he has memorable moments that I remember because I watched him as a kid or I watched the build. You know, I got Royal Rumble 94, so um, I've seen the highlight of it and things like that. So, but I thought he was decent. Um, I just he had to like, look that. I just felt like he never clicked there for me, uh, especially when they tried to work him out as a lead announcer. I do agree with you. He was uh, more tolerable in that color commentary role. Um, but it just felt like, I don't know, like he never really got a grasp fully uh, to show off his personality because he wasn't a heel there or, and you know, most of his career, at least in the NWA, he was a heel. Uh, he just, he was there as a commentator. He wasn't there as a, an entertainer. He wasn't there as a, a gimmick or a character. So he kind of was bland with, with me, but I loved Stan Lane, the wrestler. I, I loved him as a performer. I just, um, I, I guess I wanted more from him. I kept waiting for him to maybe, turn heel or maybe uh, break out and, and get back in the ring. And it just never happened. And then eventually he just kind of disappeared off TV. And I think he went and did some commentary for some boating shows or something of that nature on like a, an ESPN seven or something like that. But I think there was a point where Lane was uh, uh, doing commentary with Ted DiBiase and I just didn't care for that at all. 
And then he uh, hosted the uh, challenge show with Doc Hendricks. Well, and uh, just wasn't a fan of that either. Playing off of Michael Hayes' Doc Hendricks is you're never going to get over. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, Dag, the Bobby Eaton here. I think Vince probably didn't even. He probably thinks that most people had no idea who Stanley was, who he was. Look at this double bulldog. Nice. Nice work from Bobby. Yeah, they always say Vince never really watched the competition, so he didn't really know, uh, unless you were a super major top star, he didn't really know a whole lot about uh, anybody from the other companies. And I'm sure Vince knew that who the Midnight Express were. But oh, here we go. This Stan Lane super kicks one of the uh, assassins. He uh, loaded his headbutt and accidentally headbutted his own partner with the uh, loaded headbutt. Now, here we go. Rocket launcher on Bobby Eaton on top of the assassin. One, two, three. This one's over. Look at that crowd get up solidly behind the Midnight Express. You're, yeah, definitely. That crowd's going insane for him. I'm assuming Stan didn't want to pick up one of those big guys for the Vegematic. <laughs> I don't know that he could have. These guys aren't, aren't exactly the most nimble <laughs> and agile of, of guys. <laughs> Anyways, you get a replay here. The Midnight Express obviously pick up a win here to keep them ready for the original Midnights at Chi-Town Rumble. I think they made the right call here. If they were going to put a Midnight Express over on TV, at least it was uh, Eaton and Lane because, as we know, Rose and Condry, well, Condry will be out the door before Rose, but as we know, at least one of them won't be here after Chi-Town Rumble. That's no secret. And I think they're going to go into a commercial break here, yeah. And up next is, uh, I think we got an interview up next with Ricky Steamboat. And Lil, and Lil Dragon. That's right. And damn that little dragon. Too much Little Dragon going on on my TV screen. Yeah. I know on the last episode you defended the family man gimmick, and I wasn't necessarily against the uh, the storyline. I was just against the uh, constant trotting out of uh, little Richie Steamboat here, or Ricky Steamboat Jr., whatever you want to call him. Bob Cottle out here. Hey, man, this is the most TV time he's ever going to get, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm not really sure what happened with that. I don't remember if it was an injury or what happened with him getting released from the uh, network or uh, the NXT. Or whatever it was called at the time he was in developmental. I think he had a career-ending injury to his neck, kind of like his dad. Okay, I wasn't sure if that was him or one of the Briscoes. I, I that sounded uh, that sounds right though. Looks like he cut himself on the face. <laughs> the uh, little gotta, guy looks like he has. Got to got to keep those uh, got to keep those fingernails filed. My wife's on top of that every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Get the mitts on him. Put the mittens on him. Yeah, but this interview here, it's just, it's too much good guy. It's too goody-goody, even for a baby face. I mean, this, um, even even when he was just sticking to just the family stuff, I was cool with that. Now he's out here talking about an anti-drug campaign and his family and doing this for his son, which I like that part, which you mentioned you, you can respect that part. I do too. I think if that's where they had just stayed and he kind of just mentioned that in passing as he discussed his goal of becoming world champion, I would I would have been fine with that. And here we see a replay from this past weekend. Was it this past weekend? They did the uh, workout, and we get this right here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was on the 20th. What was that? The 14th? The 12th? Yeah, 12th. Yeah. February 12th. 
But I mean, Steamboat goes into this and he and it's the same promo every time. And I'm not just saying, I mean, it's literally the same promo every time. He's explaining the same thing every week on every show. It's he beats it to death and then he starts this uh anti drug campaign and uh most of the people here, you know, are are you know with they're him. That yeah, they're that's what I was about to get to. They're they're booing the living crap out of him and he just keeps they're they're not like calling an calling an audible and trying to change the gimmick up or change the story up or just cutting some of these lines out. He's just like a robot saying the same sentences every week, no matter what kind of response he gets. And boy, does he get a response later during the Ric Flair promo. He's getting some juice dropped on him now. <laughs> but yeah, just entirely too much Ricky Jr. here. I thought it was cool. Like at WrestleMania 4, you got that long entrance and you bring him out and Gorilla hyped him up, but when you do it like every single episode, well, that's, that worked. that's overkill. Well, that worked because that was the only time, to my knowledge, that they ever had brought him out on WWF television. That was also Steamboat's last night in the company. And speaking of WrestleMania 4, that was also Butch Reed's last night in the company. And neither one of them would return to wrestling until they just came back to the NWA here. So it's kind of interesting that both guys wandered out of the WWF the same night and kind of wandered into the NWA within a week or so of each other. Is there a reason they just? I, know, I understand. I think Steamboat left. I mean, why didn't they go anywhere else? Did it's not want to, or you know, I can't speak for Steamboat. I, there's always so so many rumors out there with uh, his wife and whatever. He had his own gym though, and I'm sure he was trying to settle down and be the family man at home and try not to go out. And I'm sure he wasn't making anywhere near the money he was making as he was for Vince. Of course, everybody should by now know the story that Steamboat got the Intercontinental Belt at WrestleMania three from Randy Savage in that phenomenal match. And then not too long after that, his wife and uh, well, they say his wife, but it may have just been steamboat went and requested time off. I don't know what he was thinking. Uh, asking for time off. I know it was like unheard of back then you lose your spot, but to, to ask for time off shortly after winning the intercontinental title at WrestleMania. I don't, I don't really know what's going through his mind, but he got his time off. All right. And he also lost the intercontinental title. And it's funny, that also ties into Butch Reed, because there's rumors that Butch Reed was the one uh, slated to defeat the Dragon for the belt, but wasn't where he needed to be at the time, and they changed their minds and just gave it to the Honky Tonk Man, because he was in the right place at the right time. Uh, I've I've heard Bruce Pritchard uh, argue that story. He claims it's not true. I don't know. I've heard, I've heard both. Ver- I've heard Butch Reed uh, state that that story isn't true. But then I've heard other, you know, uh, higher sources that argue the opposite that it was absolutely true so it's a uh, it's kind of weird how it all ties in like that but um steamboat disappeared you know uh he got his time off he came back he was never really used again uh never put into a, an angle or a storyline again and then uh you know if you didn't know what was going on it blew your mind when greg valentine pinned ricky steamboat in the first round of the tournament at wrestlemania 4 oh, but yeah. one... go ahead I was just going to say, yeah, it just blew my mind. I was just, you can finish your, your point. Oh, no, I was just, I was just saying, uh, you know, it made sense that he lost once you realize that he's gone off, gone from the company immediately following the pay-per-view. Uh, now, Butch Reed's a different story. I don't really know where he was for those nine months. I don't, uh, I know he had, uh, he was in the rodeos at some point, but I don't know if that was after his wrestling career in the nineties and, and maybe even further, um, or if he had started back at this point, and then there's a couple kissing in the crowd right right in time for the camera. Absolutely unnecessary. Get a room. 
Well, I think they were wait. I, th- I think they were queued up for that. Uh, it seemed like to me, but it, it's still. It, I don't even blame them so much as I blame whoever thought that was a great idea to put it on camera. I mean, I get Butchery well, and Steve Dane aren't like tearing the house down or anything. This kid's doing a John Cena in the crowd. Can't see me holding up the four at the same time. This Casey guy looks like uh, he kind of looks like the warrior a little bit with the with the goatee. And I know I've mentioned it repeatedly now. Steve Casey though was is the uh, brother of Cowboy Scott Casey, who was really huge in the San Antonio Southwest. Uh, came up to the WWF and was nothing more than a curtain jerker, if you will. Um, did, he did get, manage to uh, find his way onto Survivor Series 88 as a replacement. I think he replaced yeah. Bri- Brian Blair uh, in the uh, Jake the Snake tag, uh, tag team. That's not but, much. Uh, but uh, this is his younger brother, uh, Steve Casey. Uh, he would go on to change his last name to... I guess, break away from his brother. Uh, but he did wrestle in Dallas, like uh, I've, I've mentioned in the past, uh, for the global promotion is S- Steve Dane. And that's where I really, I, I got to follow him. I mean, I, I don't really remember Casey too much here in 89. And I really don't know how long he sticks around after this. But I did enjoy his work as a heel in uh, the GWF on ESPN in the early 90s. He had a long rivalry with Chaz, Chaz Taylor, the son of Tug Taylor. Uh, they, I don't know if it culminated with the bungee cord match, but they certainly had a interesting match, the bungee cord match. Have you ever seen the bungee cord match? Uh, yeah, I've watched it. I think I picked it up on YouTube to see what it was all about. But Yeah, there's yeah, not, much, not much to it. They. They, remember, this is the early inception of the bungee cord. In fact, that was just right around the time I had first ever heard of a, a bungee jump. And um, they basically get into a little cage about the size of a shark cage, and it elevates them into the uh, sky. And they, the goal of that match was to knock your opponent off the cage, caging. And uh, I guess they bounce on the bungee cord. And uh, obviously, Steve Dane eventually, and it's... Uh, funny to watch Steve Dane kind of prepare himself to fall. He stands there kind of bracing himself for several seconds before he does the jump. So, you know, it's coming, but, um, Casey loses the match. And the most dangerous part of the match really is what happens afterwards. Casey gets down on the ground and as they're lowering the cage, he yanks, they have it uh, where to where he yanks Chaz off the cage to make him fall in bungee cord as well. But the cage is already lowering. So, I mean, you're talking a dangerous, <laughs> dangerous. I mean, we, we could have lost Chaz uh, many, many years ago. Uh, who booked this crap? <laughs> this in the ring That's or the all... bungee cord match? The so, bungee cord. <laughs> you know, oh, I don't know wow. who was booking during that period. Uh, they had a few bookers come through there. Bruce Pritchard was there at one point. I don't think he was there anymore by then because Bruce came in after his deal with WCW had fallen through. Bruce Pritchard had uh, made a deal. or verbal deal with WCW to come in, I believe in the summer it was of, uh, 91 or was that 92? No, it was 92. He was, uh, that was after his global run. Cause he did a run in global managed the dark Patriot, Doug Gilbert. Um, and I believe he booked while he was there. And then he, uh, made a deal to come in with WCW and, uh, become a manager actually. But then Bill Watts came in and things, uh, plans changed immediately. And Bruce was not brought back. But I think 
That's when Vince got wind of it, and Bruce was welcomed back to the company like right after SummerSlam 92. You know, th- these guys are just, I, this is a nothing match, and it's uh, Teddy Long, the referee there. For those who were unaware, Teddy Long got his start as a uh, referee in the NWA. Well, actually, he started off as a ring attendant in the NWA on the uh, TBS Saturday night program. Worked his way up. This guy's holding toilet paper in his hand. I don't understand that. Is he calling this match? Sounds like it. This crowd's hot. There's a dude in the middle, like there. He came running down when they when Reed tried to use Teddy Long as like a prop or something, like a like a cheat. He came running down that aisle and was like cussing the guys out. Um, pretty insane. But uh, this crowd, they deserve way better than what they're getting. Yeah, and uh, here we got Butch Reed, and Butch Reed's run here as a singles. It really never t- seems to take off here in 1989. Uh, fortunately for him, he's paired with Ron Simmons later on as Doom. I wasn't so much a big fan of Doom, uh, the immediate formation of Doom under the mask, but the minute they lost the mask, I thought they really developed characteristics and, and portrayed uh, portrayed good characters and Ron Simmons and Butch Reed as Doom was phenomenal once the once the masks came off. I mean, they were fine workers before that. They they were fine. They were still finding themselves, but as a team, Butch Reed, of course, many years in the business already at this point. But I loved I loved everything they did after they lost the masks to the Steiners, and I really wish I really upset that the moment Dusty came in, he split them up, turned Ron Simmons babyface. I thought they had a long long run as Doom still ahead of them at that point. And I think Steve took off on us for a minute. So we'll just kind of enjoy this uh, Greco-Roman knuckle lock here with Reed and Steve Casey. It's probably a good time to remind everybody again to follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade if you like everything we've been doing. Please subscribe. And uh, we got another uh, big week four coming up, episode four. We plan on reviewing the follow-up Clash 5 weekend of television programming, and then we're going to do another watch-along, Chi-Town Rumble, kind of a hybrid uh, show. So we look forward to doing that with you next week. Butch Reed, just a phenomenal talent. I don't know that he was ever used properly in the WWF or the NWA until he was put with Ron Simmons. And it's it's unfortunate, like I said, that Dusty split them up immediately. Dusty did a few questionable things, I think, at that point. De-emphasized uh, Brian Pillman's push. Seemed like Dustin kind of took his place there. Not to knock Dustin, he became a hell of a worker in the WCW. But I don't know that he deserved to replace Brian Pillman there in early 91 in that spot on the card. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, Pillman was awesome. He was getting over, and he had the look, he had the athleticism, he had everything he needed. And like you said, not to knock Dustin at all, but... Um, Dustin kind of felt forced a little bit, but then Dustin just busted his butt and had really, really good matches where you couldn't really ignore how good he was on his own. I love the uh, debut of Dustin in the WWF in 1990 as a fan in the crowd, as a spectator, DiBiase trying to purchase his seat. He wouldn't give it up. Uh, So I I like the follow-up with the 10 minutes, Dustin going 10 minutes with DiBiase. I liked all of that. Of course, you know, they ended, the baby faces, Dusty and Dustin, ended up doing the job because they're off to WCW right after the Royal Rumble. But um, 
Yeah, I thought I thought the uh, push. I I wanted to dislike Dustin because of his push that he undeservedly got necess- uh, to begin things <clears throat> in '91. But just I mean by by the end of '91 when he ended up teaming with Steamboat in '92, you just could you know you couldn't uh, couldn't second guess him. He certainly came into his own, and he he was a natural. He really uh, he caught on pretty fast to earn the position on the card. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you couldn't ignore him. Um, I think he, the rumor has it. I think you told this story. I can't remember where I heard it, but told uh, he said that when he left after Royal Rumble, Vince told him, uh, just follow your dad to WCW and he'll get you over. Then you can come back and, and we'll make you a superstar. Um, he said something along those lines. And uh, seemed to Vince work wasn't way. wrong. Yeah, seemed to it work did, out exactly like that. that well. Yeah. You know, I was telling everyone while you were gone that um, I was, uh, you know, I wasn't happy with the uh, immediate splitting of Doom after Dusty came back to the WCW, but it was kind of odd how fast Butchery kind of disappeared off the TV after his quick uh, one-off with Ron Simmons in the cage. Thunder yeah, Doom match. But did Dusty have an issue with Reed? No, I don't know that it would have been a Dusty thing. It just seems like maybe Butch Reed. Because Butchery came back also under the Watts era, and he he only stuck around for, it seemed like, a couple months at most then as well. Kind of part of that Cactus Jack and uh, Barbarian weird group, Tony Atlas, <laughs> I think in the fall of 92. I remember Reed being there for a little bit because they were they were feuding with Ron Simmons, and Butchery came in for a little bit there. But again, he disappeared, and I don't remember seeing Butchery ever again after that as far as uh, an active competitor in any either company. It's a shame. I thought he's really he was really, really good. I felt like Vince never did anything with him. I he had all the potential in the world. He had the size and the look. I know Reed didn't like the uh the bleach blonde gimmick. It was messing with his hair and he wanted to stop doing it. He was he never liked it. Of course that's like a play off of sweet daddy Siki who used to dye his hair. Of course Siki trained Edge. Christian, maybe I guess <laughs> if he trained Edge, I guess he trained can't train Christian. <laughs> Nobody ever yeah. talks about Christian; they just talk about Edge. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, Butch Reed, I I loved him in the WWF. I kept wanting to see. He, I don't know that he ever got a program in the WWF. I don't think he ever had a storyline. I don't think he worked uh, an angle with anyone that I can think of off the top of my head the entire time he was there. I don't think so either. I mean, you figured after WrestleMania three when Tito came out and disrobed Slick and things like that, that maybe that's where they was going to go with it. But that never came to fruition, and that wouldn't be much either anyway at that point. Because um, then Tito go right into with that tag team with what Martel after Zinc got fired. Yeah, after Zinc quit because yeah. he was mad he was making less money than Martel. Because I guess Tom Zink felt he deserved as much as Rick Martell. <laughs> I watched Martell's shoot interview, and he was saying Zink wouldn't listen to the rules and was just uh, yeah. There's always reports, yeah, and you hear that a lot that Tom Zink was kind of <laughs> always kind of doing his own thing, lived in his own world <laughs> uh, from every all the stories I hear anyway. Yeah, I think Martell said they got required to like wear suits and things like that, those and. Zinc would just walk in with, you know, workout gear on and it, it rubbed people the wrong way. So Martel was like, 
I don't think he had a problem with him per se. He's just like it wasn't going to last long if he's going to keep on doing that stuff. So and look at Reed here working the uh, chin lock with his uh, <laughs> with his foot on the bottom rope. Somehow that was uh, adding leverage. I love uh, you know sometimes it makes sense putting your feet on the ropes to gain a little leverage, and sometimes guys just do it to get the the, the heat, and it just doesn't make any sense. There's no uh, there's no physical logical reason that it's actually adding leverage, and this looks like one of those times where. Reed's just sticking his foot over the bottom rope, and <laughs> Dane's selling it like <laughs> Teddy Long asking the crowd. Good old. Mother, are you seeing this fan? Are you seeing this fan here? The uh, that I'm seeing, he's like dead center hard kid. He's like four or five rows back, but every time Reed cheats, he gets up, runs up to the guardrail, and points at the ref, and is trying to get his attention. He's done it like this whole match. Well, at least he's into it. I mean, these, you know. I'm surprised that they don't have more people sitting on their hands right now. We got this nice long chin lock rest hold right here live on TBS. Not exactly the uh, position to be doing this maneuver. Yeah, definitely not. Though I don't know that Reed They're was ever good. a. Uh, I'm not saying Reed didn't have the stamina to go and and against the the right guy like a, a Ric Flair or a Barry Windham or something like that. I'm sure he could go, but here he is calling a spot told Casey to throw him into the corner. But uh, I don't know that Steve Casey is someone that Reed has the uh, offensive repertoire to go 17 minutes with, which is how long this match actually goes. Here's State. Uh, here's Casey making the comeback. Reed, Reed called the spot there for him. <laughs> Fans getting into it, man. That dude is he's, he's wired right now. There you go. He just got up again. <laughs> Reed's still calling spots for Casey. He called a monkey flip, and that's just so so like, funny. How, to... how long is Casey in the ring here? Like, how long has he been in the business? I'm assuming not very long at all. Yeah, it couldn't have been very long. I remember he so I... did a little bit in Dallas. Uh oh, here we go. Casey doesn't even get up for that. And Reed, look at that power. Just pulls him up from his waist and picks him straight up over oh. his head with that press slam. It's amazing strength by Butch Reed and. Says he's going to end it here with the bomb. The bomb. Has it been 17 minutes? Doesn't even feel like that. Well, it's because we've been off on a tangent on everything but this match, which I apologize for, but I hope you'll thank me for it. Look at that beautiful bump, though, by Casey there. If that flying shoulder block read with that awesome there it is. flexing pin. The cocky pin. That... Maybe my favorite oh. pin of the uh, time, but Reed gets the win and he. Pins him like a job guy with that pin. So, you know, going 17 minutes, they could have easily done this in about a third of the time. I agree. But they must not have a lot left for the show. Uh, they're trying to fill time, it looks like. I like how Casey kind of pushed him off at the end. Like, uh, like get the heck off me. Like, I'm not out yet. Like, it kind of gives him, like, you know what? I was just a second off or something like that. That, uh... Casey bump was uh, somewhat reminiscent of that WrestleMania six bump you're talking about with uh, the Barbarian and Tito, the clothesline. Yeah, and that's that's my point. If you can sell it like that, to where it looks like you're really jacking up your neck and things like that, it looks really really good. But if you come off and you just take like a back bump, it's not as effective. This may be Casey's last stand as far as uh, being showcased. They brought him in, they sold him for a few weeks as undefeated, and. I Going into this match, I believe they were selling him as undefeated. 
which I think he actually was, but uh, a loss here to Butch Reed, and I don't know that he gets any more wins after this, unless they, they have uh, some matches taped in the can already. And here we go with a Ric Flair interview in the ring. You'll see Flair coming out here in a moment. Bob Cottle in the ring. Finest, huh? Yeah. Bob Cottle in the ring. Conducting the interview. <laughs> and there he is also, the uh, human cardboard cutout, Hiro Matsuda, accompanying Flair to the ring for absolutely no reason whatsoever. These women aren't very attractive, by the way. I don't know if it's the hair or what it is, but uh, I'd go for the blonde. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, man. And Flair wearing his, uh, doing his best to wear a, the lovely 1980s mink coat. You don't see that nowadays too much. A guy in a fur coat. Ring right now. Maybe, maybe her. Not, not yeah. that one. The one yeah, right she, before her. She looks like she's ready for a little trouble. Yeah. Yeah, Flair, uh, I don't ever remember seeing him wear the coat very often. Um, so I'm wondering if he's just wearing it out there to um, show that he's like a, the complete opposite of uh, Ricky Steamboat. Well, you know, later in this promo, Flair says he's going downtown. Of course, Cleveland, very notorious back then for the flats. And it was a considered a, a big party place. And I think he, I, I believed him when he said, I'm going downtown. I think that's where he went. I think that's what he was dressed for. <laughs> <laughs> and Cottle. Good to see Bob Cottle being utilized. Much better than Jack Reynolds doing this. Oh, yeah. And he kind of lost his gig to Magnum. But uh, we get Bob back for, what, Chi-Town Rumble, right? I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I haven't reviewed it yet. I don't remember who, who's on the uh, on there with Jim Ross. But yeah, Flair's base... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I don't think any of them are very attractive. But yeah, I'm with you, man. They're all looking for a good time. It looks like they're ready to go out. They seem to be into it more than a lot of the actors today. A lot of who oh, yeah. hirees today, anyway. But uh, yeah, here's I, uh, I wrote down a few notes from this interview. This is Ric Flair right now. Says life couldn't be any better than it is for the Nature Boy right now. He's showing these girls off. And, and at this point, I think he's saying something like... Uh, this right here is the difference between him and Ricky Steamboat. And now he's got all the girls doing those twirls. Flair starts calling Steamboat out here at some point, and he doesn't come immediately. Flair says uh, Steamboat must be uh, bored staying at home every night with the same woman. <laughs> I, think it, I think it finally does. I mean, I know Steamboat comes down here in a, in a minute or two, but I think that finally sets him off, and that's what brings Steamboat down. Yeah. And then... Yeah, he tries to offer him one of the girls. He gets his pick. He can pick whichever one he wants. Uh, he doesn't come out, so he offers one to Bob Cottle. Oh, <laughs> uh, that would have been amazing if Bob Cottle had taken the offer and just left yeah, the take... ring. And right. I'll, 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 I have more to say about Bob Cottle and these ladies leaving the ring here at the end of the segment. And what's kind of cool about this saving, I, I guess we'll save it for when it happens, but uh, that microphone he's holding comes into play because this stuff is like magnified a lot more than normal as far as the chops and everything. 
Yeah, I actually have a soundbite uh, I have queued up to play here. Uh, Ricky Steamboat making his way out now, as you can tell, based on the uh, response coming down to the ring. At least we don't have Little Dragon. No, he was wise not to bring him out for this segment. <laughs> I was surprised by this segment. I, I was surprised. Steamboat, I, and, I, and before I play the soundbite, because it's coming up here in a minute or two, um, Steamboat with more of the, the milk toast comments, and uh, I think I got a little bit of it on, on the audio bite, and you'll hear the crowd's response, just epic boos at Steamboat for, for putting over his lifestyle <laughs> over Flair's. Everybody cheering the living hell out of Flair because, I mean, <laughs> he's basically saying everything <laughs> everyone likes. Yeah, he's probably, he, you know, I mean, most guys in that crowd are probably like, you know, I'd much rather be Ric Flair with the glasses, the meat coat, five women, going to the going downtown, do whatever I want, um, that sort of stuff. Um, I, think at this, I think at this point, Flair's uh, telling Steamboat he can walk away from the match on Monday, do himself a favor to walk away, don't show up. I think Flair gives Steamboat an opportunity to respond at some point here. Steamboat doesn't respond right away. Yeah, it's kind of bad. I think I mentioned it before. Like, thank God Steamboat is one of the best ever inside the ring because if he wasn't, I don't think he would be as highly regarded as he is. And there's so many guys that have been good in the ring and just not, and they can't get over because they couldn't cut a promo. And Steamboat's one of those guys, and maybe it's the era, I don't really know, but, or maybe it's because he's just that damn good. But Steamboat's one of those guys that he can go out there and cut 20 boring promos in a row and you just forget all about your art. You get to the match. You're like, all right, this is really all I care about. This is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. His biggest feud though, what Rick back in mid Atlantic was Flair. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Talk about it a lot. Yeah. Like how they say um, the matches from the late seventies were better than these. Of course they were a lot younger than two, but I, I just, it's hard to believe. I mean, it, it is hard to believe. And I got an audio bite coming up here in a few seconds. With Flair talking his trash, he's finally going to set Steamboat off here. Steamboat's going to respond. The crowd's really into it. They're all standing up and ready to take pictures, and they're they're invested, especially that bottom bottom shelf. Here Man. we go. Here we go. To me and the bulk of the fans here tonight is the fact that you represent all the evil materialistic things in this world today, rather than the family union. Hey girls, I want you to take one last look at what a loser looks like. Why don't you go home and help the missus with the dishes, pal? I'm going downtown. And you hear that pop when he tells him to go do the uh, dishes with the missus. And Steamboat said they're yeah. talking about materialistic. And uh, there's a lot of materialistic people out there. I think we all are in some way, shape, or form. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And so everyone relates to Flair, and <laughs> very few are relating to Steamboat. And then they, they really have a wild knockdown drag out here. It's really good. And Flair even fights back instead of just taking a few bumps like he had been doing on television. <laughs> Cottle has no idea where the heck he's going. Well, that's another. That, that was my issue here. The ladies and Cottle are just standing there. They're just standing there, just kind of like getting there. They don't even look concerned. They're just like, oh, okay, this is happening. They don't look any more concerned right now than they did during the promo. And I think that's yeah. <laughs> nobody 
nobody uh, clued, the, clued them in on how to respond to this or where to go. There's, and again, this is what separates the NWA from the WWF. There's nobody there to escort them out of the ring. And Bob Cottle knows better. So I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah, but, definitely. But the microphone got left in the ring. And man, these chops are so loud. You can, you know, you I, can feel them. I've never owned a $1,500 suit in my life. However, I, fi- I find that Flair's expensive clothes seem to tear a lot easier than mine. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Flare down to his, uh, flare down to his undies and socks. Still fighting back on Steamboat, though. That's what I loved about this right here. Was it, it was a little back and forth. It wasn't one sided. Of course, we still get the press slam. We still get some of the basics that Flair loves to take, and we've seen over and over. Flair loved this uh, getting get his clothes ripped off gimmick too. I mean, he been doing. He did this for a good 20, 20 plus years of his career with everyone. From yeah, Steamboat that's, that's to, rumor. to Magnum to Sting. Yeah, Here's just, Matsuda in the ring. Oh, throwing down the judo chops. <laughs> he could probably really jack somebody up if he oh, wanted to. Right? I have no doubt that he could judo chop you into submission, choke you into submission, throw you around into submission. <laughs> Matsuda was one tough SOB. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> something just bounced off Steamboat's head there. Somebody threw something. Flair chopping him, just lighting his chest up. Look at his chest. Oh my Steamboat God. fighting back now. They they were waiting for it. Oh, it looks like Matsuda's going to be another Gary Hart. He won't take a bump. Just kind of bounce, but <laughs> wobble under the ropes. Flair does the uh, over the top bump and into the crowd. But this is fun. This is wild. This is probably the hottest segment or or of the entire night. So the crowd it's has every right to, the- Oh, absolutely. Definitely peaks here. It almost looks like steamboat right here. Almost Jack's like hits Dillinger or something instead of flare on that last job. <laughs> and you know, this, you know, what's really funny about this is this is a, a redo of an angle. These guys did uh, back in the late seventies, steamboat and flare, the same exact storyline, the same, type of promo the ripping the clothes off bob coddle was even the uh interviewer in that segment so it's like a blast from the past for mid-atlantic fans i'm sure yeah i know like i said Meltzer was talking about it how uh these their matches their initial matches were so far so long ago that they don't even doesn't even think the fans are the same and would even remember it right uh, like on a national level so this is a national they wouldn't have seen that yeah this is national this is first time these guys have Went at it on a national scale for certain. Here's Steamboat so, putting putting Flair, what's left of Flair's shirt on, saying, you know, you're right <laughs> something about this is what a uh, $1,500 suit feels like. Now, he looks I, awesome with the glasses on. Uh, like, everything else can go, but the glasses, I I'm think telling you, if he, if he had put that shirt on, I mean, and not ripped up, and put those glasses on, I'd buy him as a heel until he opened his mouth anyway. Like, he looks like a, a heel right there. Uh, Kind of reminds me like a, you know, you know Hernandez a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I can see that. There goes the fifteen hundred dollars suit. People always say, you know, Steamboat was never a heel in his entire career, and I don't know that you know they say it would have never have worked. I don't know. I would have liked to have seen somebody try his pro, but he would have absolutely need needed a uh, a manager. There's no way he would have. He's he. If you can't cut a good babyface promo, you're not going to work as a heel. 
the crowd was even booing then. Like that, that, right. Yeah, they bit. weren't happy that Steamboat came out on top of Flair. So it's kind of awkward. Um, did, you don't, did, you did don't, this? I don't know that that happened so much during the Chi-Town Rumble match. I don't remember that happening there. But, yeah, here in Cleveland, being in the north. Well, the Chicago's in the north. They were a big heel-heavy heel crowd as well. Yeah. Um, do you think and, this uh, was kind of the catalyst for his face turn? For Flair's face turn? Yeah, I, for the rest I, of the I just think they uh, really didn't have anywhere for Flair to go. And it, Terry Funk came in at the perfect time. And it just kind of worked out that way. <clears throat> And if anybody's wondering, the mascot here with Hiro Matsuda is the blackmailer. No, he's never wrestled on the NWA programming before or again. Uh, but it is Jack Victory under a mask for the second time tonight. So for the second time in what, uh, three matches, Jack Victory's working under the hood. And I bet like right about now, Jack Victory's still wishing they got paid on a per, per match basis instead of a salary basis. Well, that, is he under contract? Because if he's not under contract, it probably is per match. Well, he's there for quite a while. Secret Service, Jack Victory. Yeah, a few few gimmicks here for Jack Victory coming up in the 89. When's he get with what, Rip Morgan? Yeah, eventually. They'll do the Royal Family gimmick and then the Maulers later down the road. I think Rip Morgan still has to get stuck with the Iron Sheik here for, oh, for the short tenure of the Iron Sheik. Another George Scott brilliant idea. I I can't so, wait to talk about that later on. So who's 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 worse here, George Scott for bringing him in, right? Or the the fact that Vince decided two years after this it'd be good to bring Iron Sheik back. I don't think I think George Scott's the bad guy here because George Scott brought the Iron Sheik in based on his credentials as a uh, amateur athlete, and Sheik was very far gone from that time in his career by this point. Uh, whereas Vince brought him in specifically to exploit, uh, exploit the Gulf War. He never brought Colonel Mustafa in because he thought he was a great worker. He brought Colonel Mustafa in because he was, you know, people recognized him as the Iron Sheik and the whole Iran, Iraq, the Persian Gulf War, Operation, uh, Operation Desert Storm. I mean, that's the only reason Iron Sheik was brought in because he, he never really got pushed. He was thrown into that triangle of terror. That, that handicap match at SummerSlam 91. Other than that, he was doing jobs on primetime in four minutes to the Texas Tornado and Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> so, I mean, Colonel Mustafa, you know, I, I think Vince knew what he had. Uh, Iron Sheik, uh, Colonel Mustafa was more of a prop uh, that made sense with the, uh, you know, General Adnan and Sergeant Slaughter. Whereas George Scott brought the Iron Sheik in thinking he had, you know, did something big, like he captured some gold there. And funny story about the Iron Sheik, he's so terrible, they take him off TV. And in 1990, they forget he was under contract. And his contract rolls over for an, uh, another year. And that's, you know, that's, the, that's why you don't see Colonel Mustafa until after WrestleMania 7, because that's when his WCW contract ended. So he got paid to sit at home for most of two years. And, he was, uh, and once they realized that, uh, that's why you'll see him pop up from time to time in 1990 and even maybe later in 89, because every once in a while, uh, whoever, depending on who was booking, they would say, wait a minute, the Iron Sheik's under contract and he's just sitting at home getting paid for nothing. And they would bring him in and have him do a few jobs. But he was so awful at doing the jobs and made the other guy look so bad. They just sent him back home. Yeah, Great American Bash 90 comes to mind. Yeah. What, Doug Furness? And uh, right. I think he has a match with Sting that goes two or three minutes here at one of these upcoming pay-per-views, maybe WrestleWar or something later in the year. I don't know. 
let's move on to better things. Like Lex Luger here. This dude is completely toned down and more defined. Like I, I you mentioned it last week. Like man, this dude is. He looks like a He-Man action figure. Is what I said. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've never seen somebody with so many uh, defined abs on a a real human being. I love these lime green trunks here, dude. They're like blinding me. Like I've never seen, I've never seen lime green that bright. It's uh, awesome. Like if I had trunks, that's what I'd want. It makes you, it makes you pop. It makes you stand out, especially if you're tan. It just sets you apart a little bit. Hiro Matsuda, of course, uh, Luger coming up wrestling Barry Windham at Chi-Town Rumble in five days for the U.S. title. So they have Matsuda out here with the blackmailer, who's basically, uh, I guess, playing the character of a bodyguard for hire. But there's no mistake in that big ass right there. That's definitely Jack Victory out again. Lots of lots of big booty uh, masked wrestlers here in the uh, NWA in early 89. So is Luger the way he was, like, his whole career? Um, what do you mean? Because you know, People would rib him like, "Hey man, your your abs are looking a little flat and things like that." So he'd go run into a mirror. Was that was he that way the whole time? Or I I, I don't I can't speak for how he was in the eighties. I have to imagine you look like that. You have to be uh, some form of like that at all times. I don't think he developed that characteristic later in his career. So I I would say to some degree, uh, it's you know it's I wasn't there. I can't say for sure, but it seems like that's always been Luger's deal uh, from everything I've ever heard obsessive from the the way I get I guess you ain't gonna look like that I mean outside of enhancement and it wasn't just Um, his body it was you know everything he had to be perfect uh speaking of perfect I don't remember who told the story it might have been Bobby Heenan or I'm not really sure but they talk about uh when Mr. Perfect was wrestling the narcissist on the house shows uh Luger had tassels I believe it was initially had tassels I think they said on his boots or something like that I'm not really I can't remember but every night Hennig would just pull one or two tassels off every single night, and Luger, <laughs> and it drove Luger nuts because he kept losing these tassels off his boots, or, or I think it was his boots, but some part of his gear, and uh, it, it's just funny because it drove Luger nuts. So, yeah, I, th- I think Luger was a very vain person, but you want to talk about humbling. Uh, the health issues that he's had, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone be more humble than Lex Luger since that time. So many guys have, have found God. So many guys have vowed to do right uh, later on in their, their lives. Lex Luger, I, I think he's the only one that I truly just, I truly believe that everything he says is, is true. Like it, the way he feels now and, and his perception on life and, and his attitude now, he's, he just comes off as so, I don't know, like, genuine. I guess, yeah, def- definitely genuine. It's terrible, man. Like he, I think he fell asleep on an airplane, and his neck was creaked for too long, and that's what made him paralyzed. Like you go from this guy, this Greek god, to a shrivel of a man, like 100, what, 120, 130 pounds in a wheelchair, um, for the rest of your life. Like that's that that's mentally that drains you. It has to. And uh, I read a, a long form article. I think the Athletic uh, had a nice power slam by Luger there. Sorry, go ahead. You read now what? They had a, the Athletic had like uh, their thirty best articles for the year mm-hmm. uh, around New Year's uh, for twenty nineteen, and somebody actually did a long form interview um, and story on Lex Luger, and uh, obviously being a fan of Luger, I went ahead and read it, and it had some people on there like Jim Ross, uh, Sting, some of the people. 
because Jim Ross has been very negative towards Luger and uh, just just being honest about Luger and the way he was and the way he was as a person back then. Yeah. Um, and from the sounds of it, like he's lost everything. Uh, his his wife or his ex wife um, won't have anything to do with him. Uh, his kids. He hasn't seen his kids in like 12 years, 12, probably about 18 years, ever since Elizabeth died. And that, that whole story broke. Um, he hasn't seen his kids since then. I think he did say they finally started communicating with him a little bit, like through the phone or text messages or something like that. Maybe his son, but his daughter won't have anything to do with him. Um, so he's lost everything. He's lost the, probably the one thing he cared about, which was his body. He lost that. He lost his wife, his family. He's lost all his money, it sounds like, and uh, he has nothing. Um, and I, to me, like the way he comes across in, these, in the interview, like he he seems at peace with all of it, and uh, that's why I feel I, I with you. I feel it feels genuine, and uh, I just wish more people would give him a chance. I'm sure he rubbed a ton of people the wrong way. But. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say about Jim Ross. Who knows all of the experiences Ross had with Luger over the years, and you hear that sometimes with uh, Bruce Pritchard or I don't know necessarily Tony Schiavone, but certain guys that, have, that were around certain wrestlers all the time. And maybe they, they, the wrestlers, as far as we know, came off, you know, or have changed, uh, but they've left such a bad taste in, in certain guys' ma- uh, mouths over the years that they just can't let it go. And they have these grudges or these issues or who knows, you know, what happened throughout the course of the years. But yeah, I just, uh, it's, uh, the irony is uh, unfortunate for Lex Luger here, the man that cared more about his body than probably anyone in, in the history of the business and, uh, winds up basically with nobody. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he and did, fa- uh, fairly young still when, when it happened. So. Yeah. And he's like, well, he's like the one guy, um, from the Monday Night Wars that, Outside of Macho Man, and obviously he can't come back, but uh, Luger's never really been back in this in this sense. And I'm I'm just wondering if you know visually, um, even though it had not really, I mean, it could have something to do with the business, but I mean that could happen to anybody. You get your neck cramped for that long, and uh, look at Luger here with a slingshot sunset flip. You didn't see Lex bust this type stuff out so often, but man. Uh, he re- he was really working hard here in '89, and I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just had to point out some of these uh, moves by Luger that you're not, you know, so used to seeing Luger do. Yeah, this, this guy right here, this thin, he looks faster, he looks more natural in the ring, and it's 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 still crazy to me that this is only his third year. Uh, Far more ag- agile here in '89 than he would be even in '90 90 and '91. He he did get a little bigger again during that time yeah. frame. Bulked up some more, but I, I just wonder if the visual of him being in a wheelchair and things like that, and people saying this is what the wrestling business does to you, um, is part of the reason why maybe Vince doesn't have ever have him ever come back. Well, you um, know, Vince holds grudges, and I know he's forgotten most of them. He lets them go when it when the money's right or when the time is right, and it benefits benefits Vince. Um, They've had Luger there. I know he attended Sting's Hall of Fame ceremony, and they they seem to be cordial with Lex, but they don't really put him on TV. And you know, uh, Vince isn't uh, too big on putting uh, people that aren't so uh, physically <laughs> uh, 
aesthetic to Vince's, you know, to the television screen. Right, right. Yeah. Well, we get Scott Hall, you know, two or three times a year. Who can barely walk? Yeah, he seems to forgive Hall and Nash. Uh, Luger, not so much for doing the jump. Of course, Luger's jump a little different than Hall and Nash's. He brought back Medusa. I mean, she threw the belt in the trash. I never thought I'd see the day where she'd be in the Hall of Fame. But... Yeah, I see Medusa was giving them giving them crap on uh, Twitter the other day about having uh, dancing girls in the uh, Raw Underground segments. And so yeah. I, I don't know if they had them on Raw this week, but uh, if they remove them, I, I saw a good point online. You just took away three girls' jobs because you complained about it, Medusa. <laughs> so these girls aren't going to get paid anymore because it bothered you. It didn't bother them. Right, yeah. I know Liv Morgan came to their defense, I, I believe. But, uh, yeah, I I know the Hall of Fame is just the Hall of Fame for one guy, but it'd be nice for Lex Luger to get um, the recognition I think he deserves because he's definitely one of the biggest names in wrestling. Maybe not like a a superstar like The Rock or, you know, Stone Cold. Not many people are on that level. But uh, to me, he's right there with Sting. I don't – I prefer Luger over Sting, to be honest with you. That's, well, that's for another day. And I'll probably well, get some flack for that. But I think, uh, I think uh, 90, 91 – I was certainly a Stinger first and, a, and Lex Luger second, but I think it went in that order. I think I like Sting and I like Lex Luger. Steiners. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong that you like Sting over Luger. I, um, almost everybody does. Uh, Luger but, hulking up here. He's Lexing up. Dude is awesome. Yeah. It's kind of weird. This is going to sound kind of ridiculous, but if you could just hit a button and say, I want to look like that guy. It, I would, it'd be hard pressed not to pick Lex Luger at this moment. Can imagine the uh, determination it takes to get a body like that, and I certainly don't have it. So <laughs> I don't know that I have the the genes to to uh, look like that. You have to have a certain certain genes to just look just uh, perfect, I guess, in the eyes of uh, many. Luger here going to set victory up, the blackmailer up for the superplex. Um, basically sending a message to Barry Windham, whose finisher is the superplex, and he beats the blackmailer here. Match goes about like 13 it. minutes. 13 minutes against a guy in a mask we've never even seen before. Basically an extended squash. I don't know that it did Luger any favors have it going 13 minutes with this guy, but it is what it is. We come back. Yeah, he looks good, man. It's time for uh, – they show these uh, – this <laughs> match is supposed to be next, but we get a Rick Steiner promo first, so – Steiner Watch 89! It's time for Steiner Watch 89, and I don't understand the point of Michael Hayes up here bringing Rick Steiner up there. Unless it was to get over the point that Michael Hayes is down in the basement, which plays into the story later in the show. We get a short interview here with Rick Steiner, although his match isn't next. Uh, We got, as they show, the U.S. tag title match is next. It's um, Dr. Death and Mike Rotunda taking on the Fantastics, and I think it's funny, after this many months, all of a sudden they announced that it's basically Freebird's rule with U.S. tag titles. Now, all of a sudden, any two members of the Varsity Club can defend the titles, and the Fantastics finally get their title rematch from Starcade uh, a couple months later here. They've only, we've only seen them one time, right? The Fantastics? Yeah, like, I think that's all we've seen them so far. Was that one I think, match? I think they were on a couple of tapings the in, the first, first, in the first episode. 
But um, yeah, that last episode we did, I don't remember seeing the Fantastics more than one time over the course of those three or four weeks. And now, now all of a sudden they're on Clash of the Champions getting a rematch for their belts. Like it, it makes a, sense. It's they're putting the throw they're putting the throwaway matches on here. I mean, you look at every match. There's there's somebody you know that's just throwaway. You have the Russian assassins. They're you're putting the Midnight's over. The Midnight's are going to Shytown Town Rumble. Steve Casey putting over Butch Reed, who's wrestling Sting at Shytown Town Rumble. Then you have uh, what what was the the blackmailer who's not you know we'll never even see again putting Luger over who's wrestling Wyndham at Shytown Town Rumble. And here we have. The Varsity Club are taking on the Road Warriors, and Rick, well, Rotunda's taking on Rick Steiner at the pay-per-view against the Fantastics, who haven't even really been on TV lately. And so you can yeah, kind of guess how this match is going to go. Yeah, it's kind of crazy how fast the Fantastics fell out of favor with, I'm assuming, George Scott just didn't. Which makes no sense to me because it was they were basically the top babyface team, if you don't count the Road Warriors. I don't really count the road warriors when i talk, talk about top teams i mean the, there's the road warriors and then there's everybody else as far as the uh the pops go because that's why they have what they call the road warrior pop with my guy i love kevin Sullivan in this in this era right here um but yeah uh and i'm really really like i'm with you man i'm really starting to enjoy the varsity club here Look at that dude wearing the dragon shirt from the WWF. <laughs> yeah, Rotunda. I think I, I like the the uh, team of Rotunda and Doc a lot better than Sullivan and Doc. I liked Sullivan more in the manager managerial role here. I didn't mind when Sullivan would get in the ring, but I, I if I had my choice when it come to a big time competitive match, I'd rather see Doc and Rotunda in there. Just a lot more offense, a lot more uh, arsenal <laughs> in their repertoire. I think so too. Sullivan's really good at those squash matches where he's just doing all the dirty tricks, stepping on hands and raking eyes and doing all the stuff that he did and worked really fast. Can't really do that against uh, an actual team. Um, you got to pace yourself and put a match together. And I think these two are way better at that than Sullivan. I mean, Sullivan's pushing God. I mean, he's, I think he started in the early 70s. So Sullivan's been around quite a while and he knows everything. He's booked. He's, he's, Made event it. He's opened the shows. He worked worked in New York during the seventies. He worked pretty much everywhere else. Had that giant run in Florida, and now you know here we are with the Varsity Club. I never I never understood how Sullivan fit in with the uh, Varsity Club, but it just seemed to work, and it shouldn't have worked, but it did. And that shows how you know how good Sullivan was. And I think Mike Rotunda needed that mouthpiece as well. Yeah. I I think all these guys did. I think Rick did yep. initially. Good point. Um, and we'll find out other guys do too here in the next couple of weeks when we do more TV. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I, you know, there's just so many questionable booking decisions going through the year of splitting teams up for absolutely no reason or turns. Guys not getting put like the Fantastics here just being used as, I don't want to say afterthoughts, yeah. but certainly just filler. And that's unfortunate to say because I, I'm not I, I don't find I think the Fantastics are filler. I, lo I love them in the UWF. Uh, they had some great matches. I loved them here in the NWA. Great matches, especially with the Midnight Express. That was some fun stuff with the, the with the lashes and Jim Cornette. Um, but it just seems like you have a team like this. Why are you not utilizing them more? Could you imagine? You know the Samoan SWAT team are on their way in, and I don't I hate spoiling things in in, in advance. But they, the SST are on their way in. Could you? Could you imagine the matches 
we could have gotten between the SST and the Fantastics. It would have been just amazing. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, you got teams like you got Hayes with six different partners in three weeks. It feels like, and you really don't have a lot of baby face teams. A lot of your teams are heel heavy. Like you know, even the roadies, they're they're bad. They should be bad. Um, really, all you have is like the Midnights and then the Hayes combos, and you don't have much else. So you have a team like the Fantastics who can work with anybody. They're over. They just want a tournament for one of your tag belts. And you made and a good point. You, you made a good point there with uh, Michael Hayes. They're sitting there trying to find him a partner every week. Dick Murdoch, Junkyard Dog, Sting. They're trying to. They're determined to get Michael Hayes over in the tag team uh, scene because he had been over as a, the Freebirds. Uh, meanwhile, you already have the Fantastics here, an established, really good tag team. And instead of using them, you're you're too busy trying to create a new team. It just yeah, it boggle it boggles my mind. The booking yeah. decision. Are they on their way out here? Are they on their way out, or I think Fulton might have pissed Doc off there a little bit. Uh, Fulton tried to shoot Doc off and and do a drop toll at the same time, and Doc tripped and fell still, but he wasn't wanting to take the move, so he, he wrangled wrangled Fulton to a headlock there, kind of slow things down. And I think they're talking about it there. <laughs> oh, he's telling, he's telling, t- telling Bobby to oh here we go, and he trips him, takes him out of the ring this way. Doc comes right back in again. No sells it again. And it's my point, like the pop-up promo, like it's covering the ring because the way their camera angles are. Yeah, I mean it's definitely different than than the WWF, but uh, you can't blame them for trying to steal a great idea. It's just the production's nowhere near Vince McMahon's production. It's like Tony Schiavone says the first day he walked into the production studio, he, he was in a. It was just like, you know, uh, what what would Bobby Heaton used to say? It's like comparing uh, ice cream to horse manure, you know. So. Yeah, I can imagine. Is that do you think that's one of the detriments to what held the NWA back and even I, WCW? In the, um, I think Vince was smart because he went and found the best of everyone, the best producers, the best directors, uh, the best cameramen, the best uh, editors, the best people that knew the. He went and found a bunch of promoters that knew maybe more than him about certain things. And he picked their brains. He picked Jim Barnett's brain until he didn't need it anymore. He picked George Scott's brain until he didn't need him anymore. He picked a, a lot of, you know, he kept Pat Patterson around and Bruce Pritchard around for, for the most part. But in general, I mean, he, he picked a lot of people's brains and when he was done with them, he was done with them for better or worse. He was very smart. He learned from everyone and he kept, kept a lot of guys. I believe uh, Kevin Dunn, who uh, nobody can, can seem to stand. Uh, I believe Kevin Dunn, I, I think I heard something along the lines of his father worked for Vince Sr., and that's kind of why Kevin Dunn got the job, and that's why Vince Jr. or Vince, Vincent Kennedy is uh, so loyal with Kevin Dunn. That's one thing I will say. Like, he told his dad he would take care of his people, and, uh, you know, Grilla had a job until he died. Uh, Kevin Dunn's been there. Geez, he was the producer of the primetime shows back in 85. I'm sure he was there before then. Tommy um, Rogers laughing in the corner, so I'm not sure what Doc was saying to him there. Either that or he was smiling while he was selling. But yeah, you're right. Oh, wow. He, I think he tried to land on his feet there out of that backdrop. That would have been nice, but uh, it didn't work out. But yeah, you're right. There's so many people that Vince took care of that uh, uh, Arnold Skoland and so many other James Dudley. Yeah. So Vince catches a lot of flack, and rightfully so, but 
Um, he did keep his word I to his father, so I, you know, you can say that much. Kept his word to somebody. <laughs> that may be the only uh, verbal handshake agreement he ever made with anyone that he actually kept. But, I mean, that's it. That's almost every business, though. Uh, there's you got to be ruthless. Um, it's a cutthroat world. So I don't. I'm not gonna be that guy that just trashes people, and I'm not gonna. You can bag on Vince all day, every day, but I mean, that's how most of those guys are. So I just take it for what it is and move on. Uh, scratch your head all you want, but back on this match, this match is like really sloppy. I don't know. The Fantastics are just pissed that they're being used as enhancement talent, so to speak, or if they're just off or what the deal is, but a lot of missed uh, spots. And nice sign in the all. crowd. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sign in the crowd, crowd that said, uh, Gary D is Joe Mama. Not really sure what that means. but uh, Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> I, I, I think this was just thrown together. Uh, there probably wasn't a lot of talking or anything before the match. They just kind of went out there and winged it. And maybe, uh, maybe these guys just aren't gelling. Maybe they, they just don't click. Um, I, I feel like just on paper, this could be a, a great match. I, I would, I would call this a pay-per-view caliber match on paper, but yeah, a little sloppy out here. A lot of uh, missed time spots. Yeah, you can tell they haven't worked. Usually, these class matches, I'm sure they had matches that. You know, they worked on the house show circuit for at least a month or so before they took it to TV oh, or, disgusting. you know, feuded or. Right. <laughs> uh, Micro, I just now they... noticed Micro has got a taped thumb working the old Ernie Ladd gimmick there. He uh, gave uh, Fulton the taped thumb to the throat, throat and Fulton started um, spewing yeah, that foam. <laughs> Woo, what a dropkick by Mike. Yeah. I mean, he got up. You, you didn't see Rotunda do that a whole lot beyond uh, this uh, varsity club. I mean, IRS wasn't throwing dropkicks. Absolutely not. IRS was living the dream, getting paid, doing nothing. Yeah, Cut chin locks. <laughs> Two-second promo, you know, and get heat and then do a write-off out of nowhere. I did love his clothesline. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think they told him, you know, uh, before he went out, when he was IRS, uh, go over with the clothesline and make sure your promo ends in the word taxes. And that's pretty much all the di- <laughs> direction he was given before he went out. Or pay your fair share or something like that, yeah. Uh, so you mean to tell me I don't have to go out here and put on a 20-minute classic? I can just go out here and do nothing and get paid? Yeah. That's, an, that's another thing from the NWA. You know, other than George Scott coming in here and telling the uh, early early matches on the card not to do a whole lot, um, these guys busted their butts. They went out there to put on great wrestling matches. And uh, in the WWF, it wasn't so never never really about that. And that's why you've seen so many guys who ha- who were amazing wrestlers that when they got to the, the, the big show, the WWF, if you will, that, it's like, what happened to him? What happened to, like, big guy, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, you go back and watch Mid-South, watch the UWF, you tell me that dude wasn't, wasn't a hard worker. I mean, he wasn't having technical clinics, but um, he was busting certainly out ass. there. Bust, yeah, absolutely busting his ass. And the one-man gang, the same. For a guy that size, my God, how amazing he was in uh, the Mid-South and a lot of the other territories, too, but certainly the Mid-South and UWF. And then they come to the WWF, and it's like, you guys don't have to do that here. Just do two, three moves, and, oh, Roger's getting a little hot coming in the ring, distracts Teddy Long, and that lets the uh, varsity club, well, I thought they were going to double team there. They didn't even have to. <laughs> but Yeah, it looked a little messy there. It looks like Roger's got too far deep in, and by the time they got back over there, he didn't have enough time. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it makes you wonder, do you think these guys were – 
Now, I know some of them are lifers, you know, NWA guys forever, and they, whatever the case may be, but. Nice press. I love this move where he just, like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't think I've just seen anybody. Just runs right through him. Just runs right through him. What, the tackle? No, no, oh. no. The, the gorilla oh. press where he just throws oh, yeah. him up and just down. Oh, yeah. Just throws him up in the air. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Warrior to a jobber, but. <laughs> I don't know if I've. I've seen the warrior even do that, but yeah, Dr. Death, you know, I remember one of the war games that he was in where he was pressing, uh, I don't even know who it was. And, uh, I think it was Gordy of all people, 300 pound Gordy, but it might've been someone else, but I believe it was Gordy here in the the war games here in 89, where he presses him up into the cage repeatedly. It was really cool. Cool visual. Anyway, don't know that it hurt much with the, with the uh, loose chain link fence <laughs> bouncing off the loose chain link fence, but it looked cool. Time oh, to, yeah, t- yeah, t- uh, cool. Whoa. Missed <laughs> Doc didn't even go for the clothesline. Rogers ducked nothing. Instead of hitting the ropes, runs over the corner. He's just more sloppiness. These guys are just all over the place. Rogers was great, though. Tripped up I from the outside by Rotunda. Oh, yeah. And if Rogers wasn't so small, and I'm not even like a big guy, small guy type, uh, I, don't, I don't really look into that too much, but Rogers just, you can't really overlook how short he was. And if he wasn't, I, I would have bought him as a, a, easily a, a single star. But yeah, I think, he came I along think he, like 10 years too early. Look at this. He was supposed to go for a crossbody there, and Dr. Death never stands up, and he kind of does a tackle to the back of Dr. Death and covers him and rotunda off with the knee, Doc on top. That would be the end right of this one. Ahead. Yeah. That had to, I think Doc just got pissed off at these guys. Cause I can't I imagine the that. conversation these guys might have had after this match because there were so many blown spots, and then and – then, Rogers comes off the or yeah, Rogers comes off with the crossbody and Doc's bent over and he just doesn't really even change gears. So, he just yeah, he just lands on top of the back of Doc and they take the bump oh to the God. ground. I just think Doc probably got pissed at that first move where he, he tripped up Bobby by Bobby Fulton and I think he's like, you know what, screw this. Oh, another, <laughs> another of my uh, favorite jobbers here. Bob Bradley. Yes, know him, battle know, cat. Know him better in the WWF, yeah. He had a few he years here. here. Yeah, he got even. I mean, he I, when he worked uh, when he had that contract in the WWF there for a few years in the early '90s, he looked really good there. I'm sure he was on the gas too, but he looked really good. Tan looked like somebody. Yeah. I like the glasses and the headband. That that kind of makes him set apart a little bit. But, uh, but here we go. Uh, steam, steamboat out, trotting, trotting out. Um, little Ricky Steamboat twice now, and uh, here comes the uh, wannabe Miss Elizabeth. Right behind him, Bonnie Steamboat. And I, I really feel like that's what th- this all starts. It goes back to Steamboat's view with Savage and Elizabeth out there. I feel like Bonnie was watching that and said, I want that to be me. And that that's kind of how we end up with Bonnie Steamboat forcing her way onto these shows. She comes out with the white gloves on. It just feels so bootleg, Miss Elizabeth. It does. It definitely does. Um they're taking it up a notch, though, bringing out the little baby, though. You know, I have yeah, one, prob- it, one problem here is I don't understand why this match is following the angle. This is something you should have put on early and then done the angle later in the show. To do that hot angle and then wait a half an hour or whatever it's been and then have Steamboat come out to work a squash, it's, I, I, I don't get it. Like, um, just poor card placement. Yeah, absolutely. 
Let him, the, you know, you, you end the night, and then your next show is what? We got a couple shows before Shy Town Rumble. You got a Saturday night coming up, but that's tape. The last thing they're going to see live from Steamboat as, on a on a you know national level is him getting the upper hand on Ric Flair. I mean, that that's how you should end this show. That should be right. the end of this show. Yeah, I feel I feel like uh, it was certainly done out of order. I would have put this on first or second and done the promo later in the show. So he should have went to the ring right after he did that first interview and got his match over with Bradley. And then, I so don't it's remember. like, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, it even makes more sense. Like the angle, like, so Ric Flair doesn't even care about this show enough to stick around to watch Steamboat fight because he's going downtown, right? Um, <laughs> so based off what he's saying, he's already gone. He's not even watching this. Um, but he had to go so put a new, new suit on anybody. anyway. Yeah, he's not making a point to anybody because Flair's, based off of what he's saying, is gone. So why wouldn't you put this match, like you said, first or second? Right. And then do the angle at the end. This kid wearing earmuffs and a hat inside the building. I don't know if the heat's not working or what's going on there. But uh, <laughs> Bob Bradley, you know, he spent a lot of time in the WWF. He he had a run there as a job guy in the early 80s, came back in the mid-80s. He, they even gave him a tryout kind of as a precursor to Battle Cat a tiger mask type gimmick on an Australian tour. They did. Uh, I think it was about 86. I can't remember the name. It might've just been the tiger or something like generic like that, but they gave him a run there. I think there's a couple matches out there of him in, in that gimmick. Uh, but you know, then uh, it comes back, I think about 1990 and I, he spends about at least three years under contract working the house shows and everything and uh, opening matches, of course, doing jobs and on TV. But as you mentioned, uh, also the former battle cat, of course. Oh, nice bump. Nice bump. That's one way to come in the hard way. I like that. Oh, <laughs> but, a little uh, behind. I guess. Uh, yeah, he's Ooh. he's working hard to get Steamboat over here. You know, but it's I don't remember Bradley in the NWA a whole lot, so I don't know if this is because he was working up north a lot, and so they just happened to be in Cleveland. That's close enough for him to make the drive. I don't really know how this came about, but yeah, I was going to say Bob Bradley. You pointed out was Battle Cat. Uh, Battle Cat initially debuted as uh, Brady Boom was Battle Cat. And his uh, debut was against Bob Bradley, which is funny. Yeah. And then the uh, very next, that? very next match, Bob Bradley took over the the entire gimmick. And uh, I just remember yeah. uh, at one point, uh, Battle Cat uh, did Bob Bradley's trademark signature uh, backflip into an elbow in the corner. Uh, not not nearly as nimble as Muto with it, by the way. But uh, when Battle Cat did that, I knew who he was at that point because B B Bob Bradley. Everybody he wrestled let him get that spot in before they beat him every week. But uh, there was a match at one point, Orient Express versus uh, Battle Cat and Coco Beware, and Bradley has to get over that he's a cat, so he climbs in the ring and stands on the top rope to start the match, and he's like wobbly up there. And Sean Mooney and, and Alfred Hayes are on commentary, and they, they, they even point out that, that the cat doesn't look so nimble for a cat standing up there. He's it's wobbling. <laughs> but uh, yeah. That's I was just gonna say that's an underrated announce team. I really I was watching them primetime right before we started doing this. Oh, nice flip up in the corner by Bradley there too. You were watching primetime? Yeah, a little bit. And Mooney and Hayes, I love that combo. I like them on Coliseum videos, and I like them uh, on the primetime matches here and there. But uh, very underrated, I think. It took me a while to acquire a taste for Alfred Hayes on commentary. I'd say the entire run on commentary with uh, Sean Mooney or with anyone, I wasn't really a big fan. But after the fact, I've really come to enjoy Alfred Hayes, anything. Uh, <laughs> I think 
his personality really shined out during the radio WWF run because he would do a call in to the show every week. And it was just one comedy bit after another. And he was so good at that. And it's amazing to go back and watch his stuff in the AWA or, or other territories where he worked as a serious British heel. And then he comes to the WWF and just plays the comedy character so well. Yeah, he's, uh, he's really good. He, he, he's, uh, he's one of those guys that did a lot of those tongue-in-cheek jokes that they probably weren't allowed to say, but he did them anyway in a way that right. you'd have to know what he's saying, kind of like the Jim Cornette stuff. But uh, Yeah, I know he had a falling out. I know, I know Alfred had a falling out with Vince because of getting cut there. Uh, in 95 during the budget cuts. He was really hurt by that. Yeah, you were about to say the turnbuckle's loose. I see it myself hanging there in the corner. Bob Bradley yeah. with a reverse Superfly Snooka and a chop. <laughs> Channeled Superfly Snooka there with the uh, leapfrog, the reverse leapfrog, and then the chop right there. Bob Bradley showing a little bit of skills. You know, and uh, Bradley also got a push. I, it was a little before this, uh, down in World Class. Uh, even had a couple matches with uh, the Warrior down there before Warrior came up. He was the cat man, Bob Bradley, down there. Yeah, so that, that also plays good. back. So from the tiger to the cat man to battle cat, this guy was had a fetish for being a feline. Yeah, Bradley's just a professional. I mean, he, he reminds me of like a Barry Horowitz or a Steve Lombardi type deal. Um, just a little bit more athletic than those guys. But, you know, good for him. He found a niche in the wrestling business and made, probably made some decent money. And was on TV every week, and uh, you know, you need those guys. Steamboat going up here, and big flying chop. Bradley, just great bumps throughout this entire match. Bradley's just made this uh, Steamboat look amazing. And I think I like that's what kept him employed by Vince for so long. And the crossbody's going to end it here, I'm sure. Two and three. Yeah, Steamboat even let him get a little bit of offense in and things like that. Um, so, like you said, and I think it was our first episode, you know, if a guy's respected and he has the ability and things like that, then um, they're going to get a little bit of act- activity and a little bit of action when they got respect from the guys. So. And it was very different in the NWA to the WWF because I just I remember just reading uh, some transcript from – I don't know if it was Ar- Arn Anderson's podcast or whatever or something along those lines, but um, Arn just told a story in the last couple of weeks of uh, Barry Darso played a big part in them coming up, Demolition Smash, because they knew each, knew each other from the NWA, played a big park- part in working that out with Vince and getting them called up to the WWF, and they go out there and they, they work some job guys. I don't remember who they were, but it was, it was I think it was the Young Stallions, and they gave them some, some offense, and they came back through the curtain and Darso said, what the hell are you doing? You're embarrassing me out there. And Arn says, well, we're just doing what we always do. And Darso says, that doesn't, that's not how we do things up here. We beat the crap, we, we beat the crap out of guys. That's how we get over up here. So it's a little different. I, and I do know that WWF, they still gave guys like Horowitz, the brawler, Bob Bradley, a few, few, Jimmy Powers, a few things here and there. But in the WWE or in the NWA, I think that they still had more, more offense by the job guys than in the WWF. And look at this right here, this uh, picture of Rick Steiner. It doesn't even show his opponent, so you already know the outcome of this before we even go into it. As we uh, get ready for it's time for Steiner Watch 89. Steiner Watch 89! And uh, Rip Morgan in the ring, man, he looked like a beast right here. If if he had uh, been a little better, maybe uh, as an actual wrestler, I think uh, he could have done something. 
He certainly needed a manager, though, which, other than Lord Littlebrook, I don't know that he <laughs> he had one. Yeah, I that, I, that I can think of yeah. off the top of my head. And Steiner here, if you're wondering how over he is, you can't tell on the network because they have uh, their own generic music over it. But um, I actually uh, recorded audio, and here it is. Barking here in the pound here in Cleveland. Steiner belt on backwards or not. This is a non-title event. As we all know, he will be facing Mike Rotunda for the World Television Championship come Monday night. And a lot of that audio was, including some of Jim Ross's commentary, was edited out of the network because they had to put um, their own music over top of the uh the soundtrack, so I wanted to play my original VHS version that I recorded all those years ago, uh, because I just wanted everyone to hear just how over Rick Steiner was, and of course Jim Ross had to get that Cleveland barking line in. He just knew that was coming. I'm loving this opening, like Rip Morgan's just doing this weird-ass shit, or excuse me, uh, weird stuff, <laughs> and uh, uh, Rick Steiner is uh, just looking at him like, what the heck are you doing? Like He just looks off, like he wants to get a piece of that action and he just goes and bites his leg. Um, Rick Steiner, man, he, he's playing his gimmick to a T and, and I'm loving it. it. It's a child's gimmick and it's a way for him to get over with that, but he's so good in the ring with those little things that true wrestling fans can appreciate. Right. Um, that you, you can't ignore him. You, you look forward to seeing him every week and you can't wait to see what he does, even in squash matches. Um, like that power slam off the second rope and stuff like that. He's just right. And it's, he's tinkering everything, and it's just great. Right. I agree with you 100%, man. And um, it should be noted here that originally they announced on TV that Rick Steiner's original opponent here was supposed to be Commando Ray Candy, and I don't even know how that would have how that would have turned out. Oh, but uh, Candy was actually fired two days before this event for refusing the job to Bobby Eaton on a house show. So we got a little lucky here. Uh, Rip Morgan a little easier to uh, handle in the ring than uh, Commando Ray. Oh, yeah. I love this here. Steiner bashing his own head into the turnbuckle. I've seen a few guys (laughs) do it, but Steiner doing it, it just, it was so much better. It was so good. Everything he did was, he really had this character down, and I'm so, so angry that they they abandoned it. But Steiner Watch lives on for the moment because he shoots, oh, rip off the ropes here, and I think I got another audio bite coming up right here. And we most certainly wrestle here. Since 1905, the established mark of excellence in professional wrestling. Oh, pit bulldog there, doesn't he? Looks like a Georgia mascot. Jim, if I wasn't mistaken, I think he'd like to run over there and bite him on the leg. I mean, this guy's wide for sound. I'm glad there's no fire hydrants in sight. Steiner is, he is pumped here, man. I'll tell you something. He's looking up at the crowd. They're barking with him. And uh, yeah, but just uh, the crowd again, just really excited for Steiner here. No particular reason. It's, I mean, this is basically a squash match, but the crowd's still just eating this up, eating this character up. Rick Steiner uh, still is over as he was at Starcade, I'd say. Yeah, I I agree. Um, Like I said, he's every week, it seems like he's doing something different to his character or to his moveset and he's working on it. And, 
you can tell he's taking it serious. It's not, I mean, some guys, they probably get handed a gimmick like this and they're like, there's no way in heck I'm doing this. This is ridiculous. But it I seems like he really him. took it and, right. and ran with it. Yeah, and, he, uh, he came up with a lot of great ideas for this gimmick. Morgan, I wanted to point out real quick, it's kind of odd watching him hit the ropes and hit the corner. He pivots inward to the left instead of the right when you go to turn, and it's really awkward because he's getting whipped by his left arm like he's supposed to be. But he, uh, most you'll find in wrestling, everyone pivots to their right to hit the ropes or bounce into the corner, and Morgan keeps awkwardly turning into turning him on his left, and it just looks really weird, and it's throwing all the timing off. Fortunately, I don't think there's a whole lot more to this match. But I, I'm not trying to take anything away from Morgan. He had a nice spinning elbow there. It looked really good. And he, he just, he's not too bad. I think uh, he could have developed into something better than what he wound up being. It looks like he's trying to do like a cross between like John Nord and Brody. Um, that, that seems to be his influences here. Um, what did you think of those type of gimmicks? Are, are you a fan? I liked Brody uh, when he wrestled. I liked Brody against Flair. I don't know that I care for Brody's business ethics. I don't want to speak ill of, you know, the dead, especially the way Brody went. It certainly didn't deserve that. Steiner here reverses the belly to belly. Nice takeover. You know, get the one, two, three here. Rick Steiner stays over. This is eight weeks going into Steiner watch now. Rick Steiner heading into Chi-Town Rumble. Still the champion. And that concludes Steiner watch 89. Steiner watch 89. And we're going to come back with a promo. Bob Cottle's going to be backstage. And he's going to be with Michael Hayes, the Junkyard Dog, and Sting. Right outside the dressing room here with Junkyard Dog, Sting, Michael Hayes, Freebird, Michael Hayes, Sting. We're live right now on TV, aren't we? Live! JYD! Sorry, Bob, I can't stand still. You know the way I get whenever we do this live stuff on TV. I got the camera in my face. I got JYD going, and I got PS, of course, who's a pro with the six-man tags, by the way. And oh, we just got a few things to talk about. What do you want to say? What do you want to say? Because I'm too excited to even talk right now. Yeah. We got a lot to talk about, I know. Just bring that energy out to the ring, baby. We are ready, Bob. You understand what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's no secret across the world that the six-man tag was never even invented until the fabulous Freebirds. And it's no secret with these two men behind me that it's a personal thing for me to be able to go out and capture the six-man world title without my brothers. And I just want to tell you this, and I want to tell the Road Warriors, you know that I know how to beat you, and we're fixing to do that. Oh, we got a plan. We got a plan! I know how to do it, and you know it. Now, Bob, we don't want to talk about it anymore because I know there are no fools, especially Paul Ellerin, and they're watching this. And you're not going to get any information until you meet us eye to eye. You understand that? Hey, that right, dog. You said you need a bone. How about a world belt? We got a bone to chew on. We got one, two, three big bones to take those three lovely belts back down south. Right back home to Atlanta. Right back home. This guy's got more energy when he's asleep than most people got when they're awake. He needs a bone. And I got something to prove. Hey, let's go talk it over. I tell you, fans are ready for it. They're going back down to the dressing room right now. They're going to make their last-minute plans as they talk over just what they're going to do and how they're going to go against the world. Wait a minute, Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, what are you, what are you doing here, Kevin? Hold on a minute. I don't think your dressing room's down there, Kevin. What are you doing? Kevin, wait a minute. Fans, he's putting a chain or something around that gate. And Kevin, he's locking the gate. 
Kevin, no, no, wait a minute. They got to come back out of there. Oh, they got to go to the ring and wrestle right now. They don't have to come out of nothing because all the rest are caught in Kevin Sullivan, we talked about how even he was in there. They locked down there. It's the only understand. We got a major problem here. We got to try to figure out what we're going to do. Get the building superintendent or someone. Right now, let's take a break. And Bob Cottle, the voice of reason there. Kevin, what are you doing? They've got a match. You can't do that right now. You got to come out of there. <laughs> I love Bob Cottle. I love him, man. I love him to death. One of my favorites. I love him. I love I agree, man. I love him on Smoky Mountain Wrestling too. Like he really gets those angles over. Um, yeah, I was so did they do anything? With, do anything with what? Did Did the Varsity Club ever get paid back by those three? JYD, Sting, and Hayes. I don't think. I, mean, they I, ever, I don't think they ever team again. I don't think this is ever even addressed again. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that'd be a nice way to you know get into another feud if the Varsity Club you know beat the Roadies and get the six man. You can parlay that into a uh, a decent little feud there for the six-man titles that should have been done away with anyway. And uh, the match here, in case anyone uh, anyone doesn't know, it's uh, the six-man tag team titles on the line, the Road Warriors and their new partner, uh, Tenru, from Japan. Uh, they were set to de- defend the titles here against Hayes, Dog, and, and Sting. And uh, as you see, they just got locked in the locker room downstairs. So the, what happens here is the varsity club, Sullivan locked him in there. So the varsity club come out to replace them. Of course, there's no video screens or anything here in 1989. So these fans have no idea what the hell's going on when they come out. And then the, the bell rings and we get a match. I'm sure these fans had, were like, what the hell's going on here? I don't even, and the varsity club had already wrestled too. And that's the only thing I didn't really care. They already got, got over for this show. And I felt this was unnecessary. Just put the Road Warriors over here. And what a waste of Tenru. Just what a waste to fly this guy from Japan and pay what pay him whatever you paid him to come in here and do what this nonsense here. And Bob Cottle here. Uh, or I thought that was Cottle. Because uh, what is that? Uh, is that Doug Dillinger trying to help him out? Doug Dillinger trying to unlock it. I want to see uh, Tenru come go. out with the pads on. Get his own and pads I, on. And I appreciate... Oh, that would have been awesome. Tenru and the spiked shoulder pads. But... Uh, I'm down with them trying to further the Road Warrior and Varsity Club angle before the pay-per-view. But this is like, besides Flair and uh, Steamboat, this is the only feud they really further here. Unless you count Paul Lee talking during the Midnight Express match. Oh, look at that. This is just a wild brawl. Yeah. Somebody (laughs) threw some of our sound and he hit it, and it went flying back into the crowd. That was great. Never thought I'd say this, but I'm loving some Michael Tunda. I wanted to point out, I, I couldn't say anything during the audio bite, but there's a point there where Sting's got his arm around Cottle. And he's like, Bob, I'm dripping sweat all over you, aren't I? And I just thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, I wanted to make a point last on last week's episode, but we didn't really have time. But I don't think there's a more awesome presence in the history of wrestling. Uh, maybe Andre. But... The Road Warriors full painted up those black pads that they came out with, those silver spikes. And it was on the Saturday night episode, like the way they had their face paint done up that time. Right. right. Uh, it's just a presence, man. They could be the absolute worst in the ring. I'm not saying they're, they're bad, but it didn't matter what those guys did in the ring because – when you have somebody coming down looking like that and then how big they are and the way they cut their promos, like, man, they're next level. You know, and I wonder here, 
if uh, maybe another reason why they changed this match was because they uh, knew where they were up in the north here, and maybe they thought nobody was going to boo the Road Warriors. Maybe everyone was going to boo Sting and company out, and nobody wanted Sting booed. I'm wondering if maybe that had a little play on it as well. Whereas the Varsity Club, you can kind of sacrifice because they are heels anyway. Sullivan not wanting to take the bump here from the shoulder block from Hawk. Here comes Tenru in. Just, oh, lays right into Sullivan. But. Oh, no thanks. Yeah, and people have, you know, people that don't follow Japanese wrestling, they probably only know Tenru from his uh, brief appearances in the WWF and very lackluster there. But Tenru was like a god in Japan, uh, Japan. And here's a good reason why. I mean, he's just really snug and really, really good in the ring. At one point, uh, easily one of, if not the best worker at one point. Was he all Japan? I'm not, I'm not up on most Japan history. Was he all Japan, though? Tenor had spent time in both, but he had eventually actually uh, broke off and did his own SWS, which is uh, when he worked out that deal with Vince. Uh, of course, you know, the NWA had done deals with all Japan, and Vince had severed ties with New Japan back in the mid-'80s. So uh, he, that's when he kind of worked out a new deal. After that All Japan match or show in 1990, he did with Baba. Vince did. Uh, he eventually worked out that deal with uh, SWS Tenru's promotion, which is why we saw Tenru at WrestleMania 7 and things like that. Rumbles 93-94. I think uh, by then the SWS had folded, but I'm sure Tenru had just uh, kept a good. Uh, good. Uh, he was in good with Vince, so I mean, we just saw Tenru appear from time to time. You know, you were talking liked. about you were talking about the Road Warriors and their 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 look here, especially in '89. I think my favorite picture, my favorite paint of the Road Warriors ever was Animal for Halloween era of '89. He's got the orange and black face paint on with the spider, and it just looks so cool. That was like my favorite ever Animal uh, face paint. I agree. I really like it's, the hawk face paint. I don't like the the half and half that he has here. Like that one from Saturday Night where it's all black. He just had the lines going over his nose. And um, here you see they have, they've they've uh, cut the uh, bolt now, uh, cut the lock off the uh, chain, and Hayes and company have freed themselves. Uh, but we're they're taking a bit of time to get to the ring. It seems like. Yeah, you can tell they're kind of looking around, like where are they at? Where are they at? <laughs> nice play on Animal's shoulder there. If you remember one of the TV shows we uh, reviewed. Rotunda, they they had uh, smashed Animal's uh, shoulder into the ring post outside, so they're kind of playing off that here. I think that but, was championship uh, wrestling. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's been a minute or two now, and we're still waiting on Hayes and Sting and Dog, and I, I, I get it with the Dog. I don't know that he'll even – I don't know if they're going to wait for him to catch up to them or or if he comes down a little little after them or, or what happens here. But, yeah, they're taking their time. They're, they must be standing in, in a gorilla and waiting for <laughs> waiting for their cue to run out. Because they 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 were yeah. like they, they were out of that I don't know I don't know if they're in the same arena at this point I don't know why it's taking them so long to get out here. You think Dillinger cut it too early? No, I think I, I just think uh, it is what it is. <laughs> it's the NWA. Yeah, it just makes them look stupid. Like they they want to get out of there and get out to their match. And it's been like two maybe three minutes, and they're still uh, nowhere even near the ring. I feel bad for the. The fans in attendance, they paid to come to the show, and they're, they're promised this main event here, and it's not even the match that was promised. There's not even anybody on the on the challenging team that's the, that's the original uh, opponents, so it's just a completely different match than what, what you walked in expecting. 
Do you think, uh, uh, I don't even know what I was going to say. I lost my train of thought. Is this the end of them being bad, like, deals? I mean, I guess we'll have to just wait and see, but I don't, I don't, oh, here we finally go. Finally. And D- Dog oh, is in front of Hayes. Of course, Sting's already in the ring by the time they, oh, Sting, man, he could, he could fly, man. Look at that. It goes I mean, solid, Sting, solid. Sting had some hops before that knee injury in 90, man. Sting really could fly. Solomon didn't want to take a shoulder block, let alone a crossbody <laughs> diving body time. block from Sting coming at him 100 miles an hour too. But man, what spring Sting used to have in his step? Some of the dives he did in 87, 88, 89. Yeah, like he was in the ring and dropped, did, nailed a drop kick before Hayes and JYD even got to the ring. <laughs> yeah, and it shows you just how lazy Hayes is. Somehow the dog got to the ring before Hayes, and that's just insane to think about but now we got a nine-way melee here and there's no finish so now not only did we get a five-minute main event but we got a main event against a team that weren't even scheduled that already wrestled earlier on the show and now we don't even get a finish on top of that and we just got nine guys taking turns beating the crap out of each other and tenor who just flew literally halfway across the world uh gets a five-minute match here to do a few chops and basically sit back home and never to return and Six man titles never mentioned again, as far as I remember, until '91. <laughs> he uh, probably got paid like what two or three thousand, maybe more. I mean, I don't think tender is not cheap. Obviously, I think they were. I mean, it, it, they really had to structure, come up with a deal to even get him to come over here. So I'm sure he got a good little chunk of change, and he deserved it. I mean, it wasn't his fault. This is what they ended up booking him into. They could have given him a you twenty minute match had they chosen. I don't know that that that's what he would have been suitable for here, but. And the action's he, still going. I think they're just doing this for the fans in attendance. They feel bad, so they're giving them this like ten minute brawl with these nine guys, hoping to send them home without you know <laughs> really disappointing them. That's why, like, it kind of comes back. That Flair Steamboat segment should have been last because you'd like to think the babyface challenger going home with the upper hand would send the crowd home happy, but. I think they've heard the. I, I don't want to give them credit because I doubt they're really thinking this way, especially with George Scott running the show. But like, they, I'm assuming they've heard the they've heard the booze, and uh, maybe they were afraid to put Steamboat going over like that at the end and getting booed off of TV. I mean, it's it's possible. It was still a wild angle, though. I, I think that was enough. And uh, this I is uh, this is it. I mean, uh, we've just got the what, what is it? Tender and the roadies just standing in the ring. Everybody else is cleared and gone. Magnum and Jim Ross just signed us off, and Clash is closing right now. So I really, I hope everybody stuck around and had a really good time. We kind of went all over the place and had a lot of good conversation. I enjoyed all the talk. I did too. You know, it wasn't Steve, a lot of us. <laughs> I mean, as far as these right. matches go, this is a complete right. throwaway show. But, um, you know, uh, when Steve took a couple minute break there earlier in the show, I mentioned to everyone listening, and I'll, I'll mention it again right now. Uh, me and Steve had talked it over, and we decided episode four will be a hybrid episode of both versions of our show. First, we'll, draw, we'll deep dive into the weekend following Clash 5 as we discuss all the TV and behind-the-scenes news for the weekend of February 18th and 19th. Then, uh, on the same episode, we'll be offering up another watch-along. That's right, we're gluttons for punishment, as we return with the Shy town Rumble watch-along as part of episode four next week. In all honesty, there's some things on the Chi-Town Rumble pay-per-view that I'm looking forward to, like Steamboat and Flair, the Battle of the Midnights and their managers. Then again, there's also some other things I'm not so much looking forward to. 
But I'll let you guys uh, leave that to your own imaginations. So we'll be back next week as we discuss the weekend of February 18th, and we'll finish up with the February 20th Chi-Town Rumble watch-along. I had a pleasure here today. This time really just flew by for me. I think so, too. Um, I had a lot of fun talking about things that maybe not fit into the NWA 89, but we was able to branch off based off of it, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I always enjoy talking wrestling with you. I learn a lot. I hope the people that listen can pick up on those things that can help them learn a little bit as well. That's what kind of like what I'm in it for. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts in regards to the Clash 5 or anything uh, going into Shine uh, Rumble? Based off of the two angles that got put over, I am excited to see a an actual Varsity Club Road Warrior match. That's going to be awesome. And then obviously Flair's Steamboat. Uh, I think everybody knows the match by now. It's been a while since I've watched it. I've seen it enough. Uh, I've seen it maybe four or five times, but it, it's good every single time I watch it. So I'm looking forward to that. And then some of the other stuff that I, d- I don't necessarily remember, uh, but yeah, absolutely. And I want to see Heyman and Cornette go at it. That's going to be great as well. Yeah, I think at this point, I um, I think the time for talking is done. Everybody's kind of promoted into the ground for this show. Even Cornette and Polly are getting a little repetitive, especially Cornette in, in that respect. But um, Steamboat's certainly repetitive. I don't think you can do much else uh, by way of promos to sell this show. So I think we're ready. And I look forward to recapping the weekend TV and then going into Chi-Town Rumble and doing this all over again next week. And uh, Steve, as always, it's great to have you here alongside me to discuss, debate, deliberate, review, hypothesize. You get the picture. (laughs) But yeah, Steve, it's been a pleasure once again, my friend. Yeah, it's been a blast, man. I had a lot of fun with this episode. I hope you guys like it. And I'm looking forward to the Chi-Town Rumble. And uh, to everyone else, Steve and I will be back for more next week as we tackle NWA's Chi-Town Rumble. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. A reminder that you can follow the Wrestling Memory Grenade on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. If you're here for episode three, we must be doing something right. I must thank all the listeners who continue to support the show. You don't know how much we appreciate you for joining in on the fun week to week. So for Stephen X Tech, I'm your host, Ray Russell. From pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin, we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there!